What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Today is the first of a new format that I'm going to be using this year. This is our expert series. I'll be talking with experts who are not necessarily directly tied to climbing, but in fields that we stand to learn a lot from. And Rather than just a straight conversation, I will be breaking in periodically to explain things a little better or to relate them to climbing in a way that makes more sense. You know, I try to do this in the interview itself, but that doesn't always exactly work. So when you hear this sound, that's me breaking in for an annotation of some sort. Today's guest is Rob Gray. He's an associate professor at Arizona State University, host of the Perception in Action podcast. Uh, He's a skill acquisition specialist for the Boston Red Sox. He's also the author of two great books, How We Learn to Move and Learning to Optimize Movement. Um, He's been studying movement and publishing research on it for 25 years, and he's certainly one of the world's authorities on the subject. And in my opinion, he's one of the best at taking complex subjects that are often cloaked in overly complicated language and delivering it in such a way that we can all understand it. And I've had the pleasure of spending a fair amount of time talking with Rob and a small group of coaches from from a bunch of different uh, sports and movement practices and being able to pepper him with questions about how I can relate his research to coaching climbers has been really, really helpful and valuable for me. I originally recorded this for my Breaking Beta podcast a little over a year ago, um, but then never put it out because we were in between seasons and we've decided to go a different direction on Breaking Beta this coming season. Uh, We recorded just before Rob's second book, Learning to Optimize Movement, came out. And for this episode, I'm going to be breaking it into two parts. Today is part one discussing the limitations of research as it pertains to coaches and practitioners. Let's get into it. I had this moment when I was like first listening to your podcast where I went back into old episodes and I was sort of starting from the beginning and just and building my way through. And I got to episode 14, I was driving. It's one of those moments where I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard it. Um, probably down to the mile on this road in Wyoming where there's nothing around. And, and you say, it's in episode 14, you say, Coaches spend 2% of their learning time reading journal articles. 
Mm-hmm. And that sort of blew me away. Like, I'm like, really, is that true? And then you said that might even be uh, uh, on the high side. <laughs> and you go on to list six reasons why this might be and some ways to improve. So I kind of want to talk about all of these reasons and just this gap between researchers and coaches and practitioners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I haven't thought about that episode in a while. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I think uh, I think it's still true. You know, I can tell you from my own career. You know, I've been publishing research on baseball for years. Yeah, and then suddenly, where I did a podcast where I start helping disseminate research, I I got all all million more contacts and people reaching out mm-hmm. to me with opportunities and and things like that. So I, I've kind of experienced this in my own career. People didn't really know about my my work until I kind of helps help uh, spread it a little more in different ways. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. You know, that's why Paul and I started this podcast, Breaking mm-hmm. Beta, um, sort of looking at papers as they relate to climbing, whether they're climbing specific or from other sports, is mostly to give this information to climbers and other coaches in a way that they'll understand. Mm-hmm. And when you list these six things, number one is accessibility, which you mentioned is improving. Paul and I have talked about this on the podcast before that um, some of these papers can be really expensive uh, mm-hmm. for for people to access, but that is definitely improving. Um, do you still see it as improving? Yeah, I think I think it's we're definitely heading the right direction. Like with that, um, you know, like papers behind paywalls and things. You know, I know, like in the U.S., the the government. Uh, passed a new law that research funded by the NSF and NHF has to be in open access journals. Right. Um, I think that's so really smart. I think we're moving, we're slowly gaining momentum or I think we're going to get there. Where most thing, everything will be um, open access at some point. Yeah. It's going to take a little while because people make a lot of money off those. So, sure. But yeah. Sure. And the second thing you list is impenetrability, like hard to understand language, the mm. assumption that the reader already knows some of the things required to to understand what's being said in the paper. Mm-hmm. And and this is an interesting one for me because, you know, just getting into the ecological dynamic side of movement theory, I really had to spend some time learning the language and and you've done a good job on your podcast and in your book of of helping me understand that language. So mm-hmm. I, I do think this is a big one, impenetrability. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the saying I always say is, you know, we write papers for each other. <laughs> Academics, you know, right. some people use the word like research is incremental, like we're building on what each other does. Mm-hmm. And Which so is smart. To, yeah. To, and so to have to go back and explain like what an attractor is every time I write a paper is not very efficient. In fact, when I read... Like when I read Keith David, some of his papers, I skip through it because right. uh, he's explaining the theory, and I, which I know. So I get almost jump right to the method section mm-hmm. of papers. Because um, so yeah, it's really not written for someone to dive in as their first exposure um, to that topic for sure. Yep. Number three, you mentioned generalizability, and you're saying that research is too specific to a narrow set of conditions for it mm-hmm. to make sense for coaches who are coaching lots of individuals and teams and things. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I hear, you know, a lot from coaches, you know, 
um, on a couple of levels. One is like the tasks we're using. Like some of the classic motor learning studies, you'll hear them talk about some sports example, and then you read down, and the task they used was pressing buttons on a keyboard right? or, or something like that. And you're like, oh, how does that fit with a complex like rock like climbing where you're using your whole body? And the other one is, you know, um, so along with that, and the, the other one I, I think I talked about in my book a lot is a lot of research is about averages and uh, group groups and group effects. And coaches don't care about group effects. They're helping individuals, <laughs> right? right? So they they want to help all of them. So the group, but they know that they have to work with an individual. So I think a lot of people like read that and they're like, okay, does that really apply in my setting? Um, and a lot of times the answer is probably no. <laughs> yeah. So this is exactly why we shouldn't be discounting small studies. It's a thing that Paul and I heard over and over when we looked at climbing studies on breaking beta that had a small number of participants, which frankly is most of them. Inevitably, someone on Instagram would claim that since there are only 10 or 12 people, the study was useless and there was nothing to learn from it. But waiting for the bigger, more funded studies with hundreds of people is not only a sure way to end up way behind the curve when it comes to implementing things, but like Rob says, if we're looking at the right things, the averages from these big studies often aren't that important when translating it to coaching. Right. It's hard to sort of parse out the statistics as well when it's when it's mm-hmm. all looking at averages and I want to know more, how did this work on an individual basis? It's sometimes really tough to dive in and look at the individual results, mm-hmm. you know, even in small studies. Yeah. And then, it, you know, the applicability and, you know, thing, experimental control, what we're kind of taught, really fight against each other in a lot of ways. Right. right? Um, it's one of the reasons I actually chose to do research in baseball batting because I thought, you know, Batter's standing here, the pitcher's standing there. There's only so many. They're not moving around like on a field, a soccer field sure. or something like that. I can control it fairly well. But even then, people give me grief about how <laughs> my conditions are not representative of the real sport. Yeah, I think that's really tough in climbing where mm-hmm. the terrain is constantly changing. Yeah. You know, I'm almost... Almost every day, the terrain is different than it was the day before. Yeah. And with every climber has different... Um, different ability levels, different, you know, strength, mobility, whatever, different opportunities on the wall. So it's really tough to parse all this out with climbing. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned um, researchers asking the wrong questions. And you said, you said something really interesting and I know this episode was a long time ago for you. So. <laughs> I know when you said that, I'm like, what did I mean by <laughs> Hundreds of episodes ago. Um, but you said that oftentimes the questions being asked are one step behind the practice needs. And part of that is because studies take a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, whether, you know, especially if we're looking at a certain training method or technology, People are already <laughs> trying it out and using it and, uh, and things like that. But yeah, I think, um, you know, what people want to know in the, you know, in the field is sometimes very different than what we're trying to ask. Um, yeah. In, uh, in the, again, the group, individual, there's kind of a buff, bunch of different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. We're trying to show. 
And you, you mentioned some ways to improve it that I think are great and will lead us into you know, some of the things I want to ask you about. But number one, make it user-friendly, you know, easier to understand language, um, explain things better. You know, in your case, you can skip right past what Keith Davids writes because you already mm-hmm. understand it. Um, but if I'm coming in and reading the study, I need to try to understand this theory that he's discussing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, like, again, you can't always do that. Like, right. um, in the, you know, journals, most people know, like, they're really specific, right? So if I'm going to publish in the journal, like, human movement science, I can't lead off an article with a really basic explanation about sure. motor control. The, the thing I'm really loving I'm seeing now is people, if I'm going to write a paper like that, then company it with something like a blog or a Twitter mm. thread or a video where I kind of break down the things for people. Because, um, yeah, you, you can't always... There's certain journals which focus more on review and generalist journals that allow that, but not all of them are going to. Yeah, I really appreciate that about what you do. You know, Paul and I looked at two of your papers this past season on Breaking Beta, and I'm sure we'll look at more um, and definitely be looking deeper into your book, as I will on my other podcast. But... Um, one of the things that I really appreciated is when we were looking at those papers, I was able to go back to your podcast and and listen to your episodes concerning those papers and get a little more insight into what was actually happening there without having to wade through the the language and papers, of which yours is already easier to understand than a lot are. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That's definitely what I and, – and I'm trying to encourage, you know – younger <laughs> academics like with through my like I said with my experience I've had so many opportunities come from you know there's really that desire for disseminating knowledge in a in a useful way and if you really want people to use your stuff you you have to um make sure they you know get the get the points and um so yeah I think that, that so I think that's that's a really beneficial and more podcasts you know some journals are starting to have podcasts of their mm. own and so Smart. I think all those are good good initiatives. I wonder if, and you'll know this answer, I have no idea. I'm just, you know, imagining here. But it would seem like a younger researcher just breaking into the field might be more likely to use um, big language that's harder to understand to impress the peers mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to disseminate the information. And after you've done it for a while, maybe it's easier to start using language that everyone can understand. Yeah, I think so to a certain extent. I think um, there, for sure, I think when you first learn something, you kind of learn the definition verbatim. <laughs> like right, you learn, right. and that's all only, and it takes a long time to, and I, I'm still doing like some, like explaining like Gibson's concept of a specification that the other day I'm like, wow, that's a better way. <laughs> um, but, sure. you, but it, you only through kind of understanding it more, can you change the language and, and still how capture what it really means. So you're right. I think when you're first starting, you don't want to do that because <laughs> you're, you know, you really only know how to explain it the one way. Um, there used to be kind of this attitude that this is complicated stuff. I'm not going to try to break it down for you. Right. <laughs> you have to like a lot of the dynamical systems theory stuff, for example, like I won't name names, but <laughs> certain authors make no attempt at all to simp- make it easier for you. They're like, right. if you want to understand this, you got to get up to my level. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I think 
maybe there's a new newer movement <laughs> to, to try to make, to address that. Yeah. Yeah. Your your point about like you have to learn it and spend time with it to be able to say it in a in a clearer manner really resonates. I just put out a, a coaching course um, that's rooted in a lot of these ideas that I've been exploring and you know talking with you about in the uh, the group chats that we do and while i was recording the course i would pretty regularly have to go back and record a section because i'm like oh now that i talked my way through it i realize this is the easier way to say it mm-hmm. you know i'm like referencing this definition and listening to your podcasts and trying to disseminate it in in climber speak mm-hmm. and then after i'm through it a few times it clicks and i'm like oh yeah here's here's the way to say it yeah for sure and that happens to me still happens to me all the time chris you know like i said and a lot of people sometimes complain especially in the ecological dynamics even the name is right. the terminology like well there why are you using so many fancy words and the the challenge is you know if you try to kind of just simplify, you can lose some of the meaning sure. uh, and, and kind of not capture the ideas. So kind of finding that balance where you keep the meaning, but be able to explain it a different way. That really mm-hmm. is a high, it takes a fairly high level of understanding, I think, of the, what, what these mean. Yeah, absolutely. And it also occurs to me that, you know, all of all of the words that are being used um, whether it's a technical term or just language that you've come up with to describe it better can be seen other ways as well and oftentimes mm-hmm. are. And if someone's coming from a different theoretical framework, they may understand a word to mean something different than this theory uses it as. So yeah, it becomes really tough to figure out how to say it when those things are in play. For sure. I don't know if you listened to my interview with them. Um... Julia and Jeff, the the, the authors of the ecological, yep. we were we were talking about yeah some of Gibson, like Gibson's use of the word information, mm-hmm. um, even the word self organization. I did a whole episode on like it, it yep. very much. It sounds like I'm doing it myself <laughs> with right. my brain and I, you know which is I, I I wish we could call it emergent organization or something like yep. that. I liked that uh, term when you yeah, so. But it's already in there. So you can't really change them. So you're right. Some of them come preloaded with yeah, other like ideas. Like skill acquisition, yeah, I think, is right. one of those terms. Like I think like, you've put forward skill adaptability and yeah. you know, maybe some other folks have as well. Yeah, I want, like, I've thought of It's just skill acquisition is such a recognizable term now. It's, you know, I've, I've, mm-hmm. I don't know if we can change it. But you're right. right Ad- adaptation is more, it captures, is consistent with the ecological approach of what's happening. Yeah. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's challenging. The w- words do are important. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, that you and other people are thinking about these things because these are, these are the places where we get hung up as mm-hmm. coaches, practitioners and not understanding what the work is, you know? Yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people like the general ideas, but, you know, to actually be able to apply them effectively, I think you really you know, yep. There's some misunderstandings and stuff we keep working on trying to educate. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned that case studies are uh, an interesting way to to improve the situation, like the gap mm-hmm. between research and, and the coaches. 
And I'm curious what you mean by case studies are a better way. Yeah, so that's kind of tackling that, um, you know, what get lost in the average, the group, right? So, um, you know, I, you know, we get kind of this, this, this is where it helps to kind of fuel the ideal technique kind of idea, right? I can pick in 20 PGA golfers and measure their average body positions during a swing and say that's the ideal technique but then you look underneath and there's varying all over um so i think understanding how an individual athlete adapts or a small number of individuals adapt and how they change their movement over time and how they adjust to constraints is probably more informative than so a, a small number of cases um with a lot more detail than getting one number from a whole bunch of people which is mm-hmm. kind of what we're we're taught in statistics, right? We need a large number, large n number of participants. We're, I'd rather we learn more about one participant. Um, you know, the reason we don't do that is we worry about generalizability. But that this what I, what I learned from one person might not apply to everyone. But in sports, we're talking about incredibly elite, small number of people anyway. So we're not trying right. to generalize to the population. <laughs> we're trying right. to talk about what makes a gold medal athlete. There's not many of those, right? Mm-hmm. So we are, we're dealing with small numbers anyway. Yeah. Uh, how does that line up with like, um, you know, the conversation around p-values and statistical significance? Um, does it just throw it out the window or is there something there still when it's a case study? Yeah, no, there there are kind of good quantitative methods. Um, you you have to kind of use de- yeah different significance and and kind of different ways of doing it. Um, you know, a, a a good example is you know what's called the ABA design. So I could add a constraint and then take it away. And if mm-hmm. I see your behavior go up and down, like the so the problem with we're trying to first causality, right? This that my constraint or whatever I did in practice caused you to do this. And it's hard. That's why we need stats and p-values. And But when you get small numbers, you know, seeing that kind of pattern or things like that, can there's other ways you can get around it for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that sort of leads us into adding real-world variables into the lab. You know, this this has kind of actually always been my biggest gripe mm-hmm. um, with a lot of sports science research is that, you know, by design, you have to remove a lot of the variables uh, to mm-hmm. to do these studies. But then when I go out into the field of play, all those variables are back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes it tricky for coaches to take that information and then apply it once all these variables are back into play. Yeah, I agree then. I mean, there's lots of things, you know, we do, you know, I'll admit myself, you know, I've done lots of golf putting studies where, you know, we try to simpl- to make it more measurable. We make people putt to a little spot on the, on the green and make right. it stop exactly there. No good golfer does that, right? <laughs> right? They hit the ball through the hole, right? That's a, that's a terrible, well, it would be a good putt, but it's not what they're trying to do. So we're right. actually making kind of a different skill. Never mind like weather and slope and, you know, all mm-hmm. these other variables. Um, so I agree. It's very sterilized. Um, often we get people to repeat, you know, that's one of the things I often warn people, like the idea that more skillful people are less variable. 
Um, you see that on a lot of measurements. Yes, because in the lab, we're measuring them under the, these conditions where, where nothing is changing or as little as right. possible. We're not letting them get fatigued. We're not expecting you to have a lot of variability when not, not the constraints are changing. That In the real world, though, everything's changing all the time. So um, I agree. And, you know, it it's it's hard. To, you know, it's again, it's that experimental control we're taught in research. Make everything the same as much as possible for every participant and between the groups you're comparing. So it's really hard to, 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 to do that in research. I want to make sure that what's being said here doesn't get confused. We're talking both variables, the changing parts of an experiment, as well as movement variability. And when Rob says that there's a myth that more skilled performers are less variable, what he means is that there's a myth that more skilled performers are doing the exact same movement every time, when in fact, the opposite is true. They're often varying their movement more so that they still reach the outcome where others fail. Variability was actually one of the things that I got hung up on early on, and it's a key principle in the approach that we'll be discussing more in part two. So I'd like to try to explain it in climbing terms here. In broad terms, functional movement variability is the normal variation in motor performance across multiple repetitions of a given task. Initially, I thought, like I'm sure many of you do, that we want to repeat exactly the same movement over and over, especially when we're red pointing something. But in reality, that's completely unrealistic. What we actually want is the same movement outcome each time. We want to stick the move. There are always going to be small variations. Any little thing could go wrong. Maybe you pulled a little harder on the starting hold and that changed your arc. Maybe you overshot the hold a little bit, so you crashed down onto it a little harder. Maybe you lost a foothold in the process an instant before you normally would. All of these little changes cause you to have to adjust. You're varying your movement so that you still get the same outcome. You're still using the same beta, the same techniques, but there will always be some small variation. We can't, and we don't want to, reproduce the exact same movement. As you get fatigued, you adjust. If you show up more fresh, you adjust. It's more humid, you adjust. Functional variability. You've mentioned a couple times that the averages aren't super useful for, you know, for sports, for coaches. Um, if averages don't tell the full story, are there elements within these studies that we should be looking to, to try to pull out a useful narrative? When it's not a case study, when it's a, a big group study, how should we be looking at it to pull out something useful? Yeah, I think more looking at like patterns of do people show similar patterns, right? You know, so I don't really care what your elbow angle is when you swing, but maybe if everybody in their study increases their elbow angle a bit when the ball's lower, <laughs> right? Maybe mm. that's kind of telling me about how people adjust their movement, adapt their movement. So looking at patterns of change and, um, you know, how, you know, across things, 
um, differences also between the way people do it, I think. Um, so yeah, exploring some of the individual, like why do some people use such a straight arm and other people don't? You know, I think instead of collapsing that into one number and hiding it and kind of overlooking it, let's understand why, you know, what was different about them. So um, yeah, so I think some of those things and then just the measure, like um, looking at things more ha over time instead of one, like, you know, the, the way that we typically do, like biomechanics, you know, when we measure people's movements, we tend to pick out like single discrete numbers, right? Your maximum elbow velocity was this, your maximum shoulder angle was that, so what, like one number. I'm more into well, how does that change and evolve over time? And there's, mm -hmm. so there's more kind of in the nonlinear measures. I, I was reading a paper looking at change of direction using nonlinear techniques like that. So I think it's getting there. I think um, there's a lot of rich information we can get if we kind of move beyond these kind of demands of groups and p-values, things like that. Yeah. And def through the like making of this podcast with Paul, I've really enjoyed getting to see several studies who are essentially looking at roughly the same thing or mm -hmm. um, like you mentioned earlier, just building slightly off of the previous work. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that that makes it more valuable because then I'm I'm getting to see, oh, when this change is put into place, what happens now? And I can look back at the the study before and make some, you know, make some inferences based on how things changed with this new variable in place or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing that I don't I, I hear you do often in your podcast. I, I haven't really heard much of it before. Coaches or practitioners saying, oh, well, from this study to this study, this happened. So mm -hmm. we can sort of pull this from it. So yeah. I think that's really valuable. And I think maybe, you know, trying to pull out kind of more general principles and kind of put them in the, your mm -hmm. own way. Like mm -hmm. I always say, there's, you know, some really evidence-based principles in motor learning, like external focus of attention and, um, the value of variability of practice and maybe you don't have to copy exactly what the study did. It's just kind of taking these, these things out and kind of adapting it to your own coaching. Yeah. Really important. And, and mm -hmm. you have to spend time with it to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like we've been talking about, I have to go in, understand the language first, then I have to try to understand the, the framework of this theory and then, look at the paper for what it is and then start to extrapolate a little to these bigger, more global ideas that I'm seeing. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, you know, I experienced the same thing probably coming from the other direction, right? I, mm. I knew the theory and the research and, but just as soon as I was started to, okay, what do I do with this batter standing in front of me? That's having this specific problem. How do I use what I know to, to help them? It was suddenly was an eye opener for me. It's like, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm oh, going to, yeah. you know, I, I have to think about it. And I've never really thought about applying it on that level. I just kind of gave general, you know, you always end papers with these kind of general statements about application, but actually doing it with a specific athlete is a whole different story. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's an interesting way to look at it, Rob. Like we're coming at it from, Mm -hmm. two opposite directions you know we're mm -hmm. coaches are coming from uh experience and application first 
mm-hmm. and experimenting with things in that way. And you're coming from the other side and figuring out how to apply it to get a, a certain thing you're looking for. Yeah. And um, what's hap- what's been happening to me, one of the really nice things I've seen is um, um, since, you know, I've been talking to lots of people about applying this in lots of different domains is often we kind of meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they, a lot of the ideas and things they found work kind of mesh really nicely or the word I use is resonate with the theory. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, they, you know, and it kind of gives a, a framework on the, to kind of hang it and extend it and things like that. So I've I've seen that I've had that experience a lot of times, which is kind of really rewarding, and it makes you feel like your theory is actually something that has, has application, which is not always the case, right? For sure, yeah. 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 I used to I used to fully believe, um, you know, uh, naively believe that that coaches and practitioners and the application of things was always ahead of the science. The science was mm-hmm. always just sort of looking at things in retrospect, like why did this work? You know, how does this happen? Um, but digging more into the the theoretical side of things, I'm, I'm seeing more of what you're talking about, where it's more like a meeting in the middle mm-hmm. of, you know, on one end, the, the researchers are telling us why things work. And on the other uh, on the other side of that, the researchers are telling us some things that might work better based on these things we've already seen working. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm finding that really valuable. Yeah. I think you, there is some lack of awareness, I think, of some of the these evidence-based principles from, from coaches. At the same time, there's some naivety about from researchers about what you can actually do and how to do it sure, in, in actual sure. practice. Yeah. Climbing is this really, I mean, relatively small sport when you compare mm-hmm. it to something like baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research is still really young. So we are often looking to other sports and other studies to pull from. And mm-hmm. and that's a, a tricky leap to make sometimes. Um, you know, you and I have talked about this some, that climbing is a little different than a lot of the sports being studied in that the there's not a moving object, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we are the moving object and we're operating on this like set terrain. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think the dangers are in looking at studies from other sports and trying to take that leap into your own sport? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I always, so sorry, I think it's valuable to, to a certain degree to, to, to listen to coaches in other sports and see what they're doing. Yeah, I think there's some things, you know, there's, you have to consider your own task demands, your own situation and how it fits. So, you know, what I've seen, you know, we're kind of trying to help move beyond this is you see to a certain degree, people just see these kind of constraints, manipulations, and, and they just, it's just a new drill and they just poured it into their practice without really understanding why, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking to someone like uh, and the example I always like to use in baseball is like the connection ball under the arm. Yep. You know, I saw some a practice where they were doing that with every pitcher. Like, uh, right. Could, that's not it's not a drill for every pitcher, right? It's meant for a specific purpose for a specific individual. So I think there can be danger in just the idea that is copying and pasting um, without really understanding why, you know, and 
um, without understanding demands and what you're trying to achieve. You know, that's, a, you know, the biggest thing I always, why, why do we want to do this activity? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you really need to understand that instead of just, just taking things from other sports directly, you know. And, yeah, you know, I, I agree. And I think looking at those bigger principles like you were talking about before, um, if you start there when you're trying to make that that extrapolation or that leap between sports, um, I think it's easier to see whether this thing you're yeah. looking at applies. And obviously like climbing, there's safety constraints that sure. are not present in baseball at all, right? Right. And so it creates a whole different way that you can practice and you can't practice you know mm-hmm. um you know i talk a lot about this pete with people that do like martial arts like they can't you know in the ecological approach would say you should be doing the full contract things all right. the time but you can't have people punching each other in the head <laughs> every practice right <laughs> well you could, not, you could you could you wouldn't um so there's these other you have to think about the constraints of your own skill and yeah but yeah i think that to me that's a, the biggest thing chris is the print what i want you know, even within my own sport, I, I want us to all be working from the same set of principles. You know, mm. variability, challenge, deliberate practice, you know, these kind of... Um, I don't really care the details of how you want to do that exactly is less important to me. Self-organization, yeah. right? That's another big one, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's all be on the same page about those things. And so that's what I think you can port over, right? But you have to put it in your own sport. Okay. So let's define a few things here before we move on. And these definitions will help you get more out of part two of this conversation with Rob. First, we've mentioned constraints several times. This comes from a coaching method within the ecological framework, which we'll talk more about in part two, called the constraints-led approach, often shortened to just CLA. The constraints-led approach is simply an approach to coaching or teaching that rather than giving out the solution or telling the athlete to move their body in a certain way, uses some constraint to promote the athlete finding the solution themselves. And there are often many solutions that result in the desired outcome. But there's one desired solution, whether that's for efficiency, injury reduction, or just because we want to introduce a new technique or movement to an athlete. So in the constraints-led approach, we use a constraint to render the solution that the athlete is currently using ineffective. That way they have to find a new method or a new solution to the problem. So... When they're exploring solutions in that space, this is known as self-organization. Essentially, you're giving them a problem to solve in such a way that the best solution that they're going to find on their own is the movement solution you want them to find. And you're not guiding them into finding that solution in any way other than the constraint. Now, Rob mentions the connection ball here, and I think it's a good example pulled from baseball. Essentially, it's well known that in a pitcher's wind-up and delivery, when they take the arm away from the body too soon, this can result not only in lower velocity, but also increases the risk of elbow injury. And then the, the Tommy John surgery is a result of that. So rather than say, keep your arm closer to your body for some set amount of time, which ends up being harder to implement and doesn't stick as effectively, 
Not to mention, we understand that there is variability at play here, and there's a window in which this technique can be improved. Instead of these explicit instructions, coaches add a constraint, a connection ball. So what they do is they put a big rubber ball, like a dodgeball, essentially in the armpit of the pitcher, between the arm and the body. And the only instruction that they give the pitcher is to move so that when they pitch, the connection ball goes toward the plate when it flies out. And what happens here is that if the pitcher pulls their arm away from their body too soon, like they have been, the ball falls out and goes to the pitching arm side, just straight to the side. If they hold it too long, the ball goes to the glove side. So with the new goal of making the ball go toward the plate, the pitcher will self-organize into a delivery that keeps their arm tucked in a little longer, but not too long. So this is a great example of using a constraint to get to a desired movement outcome. One of the things that I have not a problem with necessarily, but that I, I hear a lot and it, and it irks me. Uh, I've never asked a researcher about this, so I'm curious. Okay. Um, I hear coaches very often who, who bill themselves as evidence-based coaching um, make a statement, something like, X has not been studied yet, so we just shouldn't be doing it. We have no proof that it works. Mm -hmm. And they're, they completely invalidate any coaching experience or anecdote, um, and especially in a sport like climbing where it's so young we haven't had a chance to look at these things from a scientific perspective. Um, but if I've seen, if I've seen this work for a hundred people in my experience, I'm still going to do it, whether there's a paper on it or not. Um, so I'm, I'm curious where you stand on this idea of evidence being based on experience or anecdote and what that means. Yeah. You know, I think there's this kind of, <laughs> publication elitism or whatever, you know, um, you know, show me the paper that shows that, you know, kind right, of thing. Right. right? Um, but you're right. You know, if we waited to do that, we would be so handcuffed and so behind in, in coaching. If we waited to, you know, research takes so long, certain things you can't test easily. Um, so I agree to a certain extent you, you, you do want you know, if you have anecdotal evidence and something works for you. Um, it would be nice, in, again, if it connected with the principles. Like, yeah, you know, right? Sure. You know, maybe no one's ever tried varying this constraint, but it fits within the constraints of that approach. So it, we're not surprised it works. But yeah, no, I think that's a valid point. I think I, sometimes I get accused of this too. Like, people will be doing these kind of perceptual cognitive drills, like watching mm -hmm. something on a computer screen. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, show me the evidence that that worked. And they'll be, you know, well, I've tried it with my player and it did something. And I'm like, I, well, I can't argue with that. <laughs> if you say that's true, that's true. Um, but I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not so much going just because there's no evidence. It's because it's the, the, based on my principles, I think applied to motor learning, it's not consistent with that, right? So yeah. that's why I really need you to show me some evidence because it's not consistent mm -hmm. with my principles. Yeah, I think it's important for coaches to keep an open mind when they're when it's all anecdotal or based mm -hmm. on their own experience and and be willing to 
change their ideas if evidence comes out that says something else. And, you know, maybe not if it's completely conflicting, that's that that becomes a different conversation. But oftentimes what seems to be conflicting at first can, as you dig into it, make more sense and, and work together. Yeah. I agree. And I I really, you know, I, I really believe you kind of need a, a theory or at least an underlying philosophy mm-hmm. or principles as a coach. And about, like, if you just uh, um, adopted every new thing that had the slightest hint it might work, oh my God, you'd be overwhelmed yeah. with every new technology, cupping, and, you know, you'd be doing a million different things <laughs> with your athletes. And, you know, if you want to chase every possible 1% gain, then I guess that's up to you. But, I think, you know, guy using your, your philosophy and your, your principles to guide that is, is I think, a way better approach. Okay, part two will show up in your feed in one week. And in that episode, Rob and I will be discussing the key principles from his first book, How We Learn to Move, and we'll be translating those into climber speak so that we can better learn to move as climbers. In my opinion... This next part is a must-listen for coaches and trainers. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the links to books, courses, citations, everything else mentioned in this episode, as well as how you can connect with Rob or dig deeper into his work. And you know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. Learn, grow, excel. This time, 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 this